0: Well, good morning, my friends. Welcome to the 23rd of September, 2022, episode of the Greenwich in Town for All Seasons Show podcast. It's hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. As always, I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640, and it is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. This weekly podcast is is dedicated to exploring and revealing the history of one of America's most notable and dynamic communities. For many of us, of course, it's also a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as mine do, or even 400 seconds, or somewhere in between or beyond, well, you're a part of our history. And we welcome you with open arms, whether you're here to stay or maybe you're just passing through. The Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, this Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. On today's 23rd of September 2022 show, we'll travel back in history to a period the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as the Flowering of Greenwich. That was when the word Greenwich was synonymous with the word millionaire. Thanks, of course, to the Junior League of Greenwich for publishing the Great Estates Greenwich, Connecticut 1880 to 1930 book. Now, made of stucco in the Spanish Mission style with a red tile hipped roof, arcaded porches, wings of various levels, roof chimney, resembling small bell towers, and so much more, Northbrook Farm was the vision of John H. Flagler. The Cold Spring New York native showed marked executive and organizational ability. He was an inventor of certain scientific processes of great value in the iron and steel industry. He even went on to creating a company that controlled perhaps the most extensive line of drugstores in the world. Among other things, you'll hear stories about Flagler's two marriages, as well as events held at the estate, including a benefit for the Greenwich Equal Franchise League and another for the inmates at Sing Sing Prison in New York. On Greenwich before 2000, we'll go back to the year 1914 to glean what happened in the town's early 20th century history. For example, on June 12th of that year, quote, famed aviator Walter Johnson drops toys from the air as he makes two flights daily over Island Beach Amusement Park. And on July 31st, quote, Bellhaven residents demand and get two deliveries of mail daily, unquote. Now, on August 15, 1922, a century ago, of course, the first actual work toward the erection of a Masonic temple in Greenwich was taken. That building still stands today on its Mason Street lot, diagonally across from the Central Fire Station in downtown Greenwich. Some of you may recall it was the headquarters of the Greenwich Federal Savings and Loan Bank. In fact, that was where I had my first bank account. On crimes and misdemeanors, a maid employed by Mrs. Leslie C. Bruce Jr. of Marr Avenue was arrested for stealing a diamond and platinum watch valued at $800, and that was a century ago. My friends, I'm going to have more about Discover Greenwich, creating a sense of place, celebrating the 90th year anniversary of the Greenwich Historical Society. You'll hear news of exhibits, activities, and events for the public. These include Coscob Fire Department's upcoming 100th year anniversary, the Fall Scarecrow Festival, the 200th year birthday celebration for renowned landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted. Life and Art at the Greenwich, Paintings of John Henry Twachman, and so much more. It's the 23rd of September, year 2022. It's the first show of autumn. No more summer. Well, sorry about that. <laughs> you, you, you've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We're going to have all this and more as history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203 869 6895 or go online to learn more at SiteDesignAssociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets, with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Well, my friends, I'm sitting here at Coffee for Good outside watching the traffic go by and the birds chirp and sing and the lawnmowers uh, doing their thing in the background while I talk to you today. It, it is that time for us uh, by golly, to step back in time to Greenwich, Connecticut's greatest states era. Now, my good friend, the late t- town historian William E. Fitch, Jr., referred to this period from the 1880s to the 1930s in the Gilded Age as the flowering of Greenwich, quote-unquote, an age when the word Greenwich First became synonymous with the word millionaire. The Junior League of Greenwich, Connecticut, has played an incredible role um, in the modern era of the Greenwich uh, of the town of Greenwich through valuable projects and services, and they have done this as no one has done before or um, since its uh, founding in 1959. One of these invaluable projects um, was the research and publication of the Great Estates Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book. It is very richly illustrated and has a wealth of details. Uh, I strongly recommend this. You can uh, find this in the uh, Greenwich Library system for borrowing purposes, or you could even find it um, in your uh, favorite uh, online bookseller, maybe even at the Greenwich Historical Society's museum shop. Um, You can find out online or call them at 203-869-6899. Now, we're going to take a glimpse into a world uh, in which the wealthy of this era constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, beautiful landscapes, reminding us in the 20th century of a bygone era that was never to return. The greatest thing that we're going to uh, portray for you today um, is Northbrook Farm. Its principal owner was John H. Flagler. That's a name that many of us know. The original architect and construction date is not really known, according to uh, to the book. The architect for the addition was Frank Ashburton Moore. Sit back, relax, and let's get started. John. Haldane Flagler, who lived from 1838 to 1922, described by a local newspaper at the time of his death as a, quote, noted captain of finance, unquote, and a year earlier by the New York Times as a, quote, multimillionaire steel and iron man, unquote, was born in cold spring, New York. He refused after earlier education to go to college and instead went to work for his uncles, who were iron dealers in New York, showing marked market uh, executive and organizational ability, he was made manager of the Boston branch of their business. Soon afterward, however, he started his own firm of John H. Flagler and Company to manufacture iron and steel. His operation gradually became noted for its production of tubing. And to further the development of this specialty, Flagler also founded the National Tube Works in East Boston. This plant was soon the principal American manufacturer of two products. Its business growing as the oil fields of Pennsylvania were opened and a demand was created for large quantities of uh, tubing. When this vast concern was later merged with the U.S. Steel Corporation, there were 4,500 men on its payroll. Flagler was not only a successful executive he was he was also known for the invention of certain scientific processes of great value to the iron and steel industry he introduced to iron manufacturing the use of a gas furnace furnace which until then had been known only abroad which had been restricted there to the manufacture of glass he also improved the use of uniform heat in the treatment of iron and steel until he had evolved a process which by the early 1920s was almost universally used. Not willing to limit himself to his iron, steel, and tubing interests, for many years he was president of the Hegeman Company, which operated a large number of wholesale and retail drug stores and chemical houses. In 1911, by a series of mergers, he created a company which controlled perhaps the most extensive line of drug stores in the world. This firm later became associated with the Liggett interest and merged with them. John Flackler's first marriage of more than 30 years to Anna H. Converse of Boston ended at her death. They had only one daughter, Anna, who in 1889 married a baron Hardin Hickey and by 1907 had become an invalid hospitalized in Stamford, Connecticut. In 1897, at age 59... Flagler fell in love with Alice Mendelik, who lived from 1879 to 1918. She was a young contralto of 23 after hearing her sing at a concert. A year later, he married her, but for some reason, the marriage was not announced to the public for another 12 months. John and Alice Flagler expanded their already busy social life when they acquired about 40 acres of choice land in northern Greenwich and proceeded to build an enormous mansion there. The property had been owned by Jared Reynolds and was later run for some years as a dairy farm by Mrs. Grace Cameron and a Miss Willard. Flagler eventually bought it in 1905 from S. Stanwood Menken. The house was made of stucco in the Spanish mission style with a red tile, hipped roof. Arcaded porches, wings of various levels, roofed chimneys resembling small bell towers curvilinear and decorated parapets, long stretches of stone balustrades, and arched portals all contributed to the rather exotic flavor of the building. In the heat of the summer, awnings shaded the windows, many of which opened outward from the bottom. The great expanse of manicured lawns was divided into four geometric shapes by walkways. The grass was surrounded by balustrades and punctuated by formal-clipped ornamental shrubbery and large plants in urns. A fountain splashed into a circular pool in the center. The estate also contained huge glass conservatories and greenhouses, chicken houses and other farm buildings, a tennis court, a guest cottage, the superintendent's house, and garages. Alice Slagler continued to pursue her musical interests during her married life. She performed regularly as contralto soloist at the Church of the Ascension in New York City and gave many concerts and recitals at her Greenwich home, some for the benefit of organizations such as the Greenwich Equal Franchise League. On one notable occasion in 1916, she was hostess at Northbrook Farm to 800 socially prominent people of Greenwich and New York for the benefit of Sing Sing Inmates, A dramatic play was performed by ex-convicts on a raised platform at the far end of the spacious veranda, which was enclosed in glass for the the event. According to the New York Times, it was the first time a performance of this kind had ever been given by ex-convicts for the benefit of those still inside prison walls. It raised $1,200 to be used for educational work at the prison. In connection with this affair, Mrs. Flagler gave a luncheon for 58 ex-convicts and their wives in a garage on the estate. John Flagler was an enthusiastic yachtsman and a member of both the New York and the Larchmont Yacht Clubs. He owned several large steam yachts during the early 1900s, among them the 63-foot Dorothy, the 124-foot Alita, and the 106-foot Esolani. And... When, time permitted, he enjoyed cruising on these comfortable yachts. In 1913, the delay of Esselani's departure on a November trip proved newsworthy. For when the time came for the well-provisioned vessel to sail, the chef was found to be in jail as a result of some drunken and unruly behavior the night before. Interestingly enough, members of the crew contributed the $100 bond so that he could be released. Well, thank God for that. Alice Flagler died in 1918 at the Flagler's Park Avenue residence in New York. In January 1920, it was announced that Flagler had agreed to sell his Greenwich property for between $300,000 and $400,000 to Walter C. Teagle, president of Standard Oil of New Jersey, who reportedly wanted to give the estate to his wife for Christmas. However, before the title changed hands, the mansion caught fire, and together with its beautiful furnishings, tapestries and pictures burned it to the ground. Among the items in the house not included in the sale was a pipe organ. Organ experts had arrived from New York to prepare it for shipment, and in order to have the house warm and comfortable, the caretaker started a fire in the furnace. It was believed that a defective flue was responsible for the blaze that resulted. Firemen were delayed because of roads blocked with snow, and frozen pipes uh, further hindered their efforts when they arrived. Consequently, except for the organ cabinet, a large grand piano, some books, and a few pieces of furniture, everything was lost. Undaunted, John Flagler not only began to build a new mansion to be of Italian Renaissance design, but in the spring of 1921 at the age of 83, married for a third time, the bride who was a painter who specialized in watercolors. 33-year-old Beatrice Wenicker of Brooklyn. The ceremony took place in a small town on the edge of the Berkshire Hills. Although an effort was made to keep the marriage a secret, the news was out within a week and attracted much attention. Hmm. 17 months later, Flagler was dead of pneumonia. He and his new wife had been staying at the guest cottage on the Greenwich property before moving to their New York residence for the winter. His new house was never finished, as he had planned. He left an estate unofficially estimated at $2 million. His will disclosed that after providing generously for his widow, family servants, and some of his friends, he had left $1 million to be divided equally among... New York, Columbia Presbyterian, and St. Luke's Hospitals, in memory of the second wife, Alice Flagler. And that, my friends, is from the Greatest States, that's the Greatest States, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book, uh, published uh, years ago by the Junior League of Greenwich, Connecticut. I strongly recommend this book. It's a wonderful read, very richly uh, illustrated, and uh, we are uh, quite grateful to uh, the women of the uh, Junior League for all of their efforts, not only in the publication of this book, but with all of the projects that they do to make the town of Greenwich a better place than it was before. (laughs) You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super friendly baristas great coffee pastries and more coffee for good provides free wi-fi free parking indoor and outdoor seating with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings my friends take it from me The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Meade Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Well, my friends, on October 1st, the Greenwich Historical Society will have the honor of welcoming Pulitzer Prize-winning presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin as its special guest and keynote speaker at the Society's 90th anniversary celebration. She is the author of seven critically acclaimed and New York Times best-selling books. Goodwin was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in History for no, uh, No Ordinary Time, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, the home front in World War II. A well-respected television commentator, Goodwin regularly appears in documentaries, news programs, and late-night talk shows. In 2020, she served as the executive producer of the History Channel's miniseries event, Washington, which explores the lesser-known details of America's first president and reveals the arc of his development as a leader. Goodwin's interest in presidential leadership was inspired by her appearance as a 24-year-old White House fellow working directly for President Johnson during his last year in the White House and later assisting him in preparation of his memoirs. At the Historical Society event, Goodwin will share timeless insights and keen perspective drawn from her recent book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, the culmination of five decades of research on President Abraham Lincoln, Theodore and Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson, all who share a remarkable ability to meet moments of seemingly insurmountable challenge with vision, resilience, and ultimate service to the common good. An inspiration to leadership in all walks of life, the theme especially resonates as we reflect on this 90-year milestone and Greenwich Historical Society's own history, flanked by eras of significant turmoil and uncertainty. At the time of our founding in 1931, the country That's the Greenwich Historical Society, of course. The country was in the throes of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. Today, the global pandemic, rising economic inequality, and climate change present both unprecedented challenges and new opportunities to community, business, and government leaders. In her book, Goodwin strives to make leadership less elusive and more practical through specific stories that can provide a guide and inspiration to show how, with ambition, self-reflection and perseverance, leadership skills can be developed and strengthened. My friends, to learn more about the Greenwich Historical Society's 90th anniversary celebration and about historian Doris Kern Goodwin's upcoming appearance, please go online to greenwichhistory.org. Greenwich Before 2000 was published as an updated and revised edition of the other history book that I recommend, and that would be Before and After 1776 The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Greenwich Before 2000 goes through the year 1999. Now it was adopted as a project by the Greenwich Historical Society way back when, long ago, well, not that long ago, but it was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr., who is a descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, a very successful businessman, I might add, and also um, one whose family have made many charitable requests uh, over the years uh, advancing the preservation of Greenwich, Connecticut's history. Now, the book is available at the Greenwich Library for borrowing purposes. I think you can also find it at the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store. Uh, You can call them, by the way, at 203-869-6899 to find out. Uh, Or you could also go online and search uh, through your favorite online bookseller. Now, uh, today, I'm going to share with you from uh, the uh, the book, Greenwich Before 2000, about what happened in Greenwich, Connecticut in the year, let's see, let's let's pick one, all right, 1914, all right. On January 16th of that year, President Garfield appoints the 21-year-old oyster man, Ham- Hamlin F. Palmer, as the first Sound Beach postmaster. Now, Sound Beach, of course, is known as Old Greenwich today. Um, the Road Commission will spend $100,000 this year paving Lake Avenue, Roundhill Hill Road, Brookside Drive, Prospect, and North Streets. On January 23rd, a new moving picture theater house, the Congress, opens on Greenwich Avenue with five real and two real features. Now, the town is being sued by a wealthy owner of Round Island for dumping sewage into Greenwich Harbor. The action is seen as a move to spur the town to build a sewage disposal plant. Now, ice on Conyers Lake, that's up at Conyers Farm in the backcountry, um, is nine inches thick with an expected ice harvest of 2,000 tons. On February 13, the town meeting authorizes release of $80,000 for a new Cusco school, for additions to New Lebanon School and $8,000 to purchase a site for the Hamilton Avenue School. On February 27th, more than 1,000 citizens attend a special town meeting to decide a dispute between factions of the United Workers. One faction believes dependent babies should be placed in private homes. The other group wants to put the babies in an institution. On March 6 of 1914, in spite of opposition from local bosses, Putnam Trust Company, the fourth bank in Greenwich, opens its new quarters in the Libano building. On March 16, a bookkeeper uh, at the Greenwich Savings Bank embezzles $1,541. Depositors' money is returned, but the bank liquidates within the year. On March twenty-seven, the town meeting votes to increase teacher salaries and raises the salary of the superintendent of schools to $3,250. The town meeting accepts uh, the $8,000 gift from Elizabeth Milbank Anderson for the establishment of the town's first incinerator. On April 17, the New Haven Railroad agrees to provide the Greenwich Water Company with water from the Mayanus River if needed. On April 26, Costco residents get an injunction to halt construction of a gas plant on the Mayanus River. The injunction is denied. In May of 1914, the United Workers reorganized to be a clearinghouse for communication and duplication between churches and and charitable organizations. They will raise $3,000 to pay off all outstanding bills, and henceforth each organization will act independently, raise, and manage its own financing. On May 22nd, the Sound Beach Fire Department boasts a new 80-horsepower auto-combustion fire apparatus which combines a hose wagon, chemical tanks, hooks, and ladders. On May 28th, Island Beach Resort opens for another season with new attractions. Ferries make five daily trips at a cost of 20 cents for a round trip. On May 31st, Civil War veterans dedicate a tree at the Havermeyer School Grounds in memory of those who died in that war. And moving along, if we may. Yes, um, on June on June 12th, Famed aviator Walter Johnson drops toys from the air as he makes two flights daily over Island Beach Amusement Park. On July 31st, that would be of 1914, Bellhaven residents demand and get two deliveries of mail daily. On August 28th, a special town meeting votes on an additional $62,500 for school improvements. And in September of 1914, George Bowles buys up the Lockwood and Mortimer Farms in 18 acres from Grace Cunningham and develops a residential park called Edgewater in Sound Beach. Again, Sound Beach today is Old Greenwich. On September 25th, the first field club drag hunt attracts 45 men and women who cover six miles with 30 stonewall jumps. On October 9th of that year, the town hall meeting approves a $560,056 budget for the following year and decides to refinance $125,000 in bonds coming due. On November 20th, the Bureau of Municipal Research of New York City recommends consolidation of borough and town, mostly for financial reasons. And then finally, in December of 1914, a couple of things. Um, The Greenwich Water Company is completing a 4,300-foot tunnel from the east branch of the Byram River to Putnam Lake at a cost of $100,000, and finally... The Greenwich Garden Club is formed. So that, my friends, is what happened in Greenwich, Connecticut in the year 1914. And this comes from Greenwich before 2000, which you can get for borrowing purposes in the Greenwich Library system and elsewhere. I know, I know, I know for some of you, this is your favorite part of the Greenwich at Town for All Season Show podcast because we're going to talk about a gentleman from Greenwich who lived in the late 19th and early 20th centuries of this town. He was prolific, he was gifted professionally. He was a lawyer, he was a writer, but I think that probably best of all, this gentleman was a gifted storyteller. He went by a pseudonym, they used them quite often back in the day, Ezekiel Lemondale. And again, some of you keep asking me where he got it from. I have no idea. He loved to write about Cracker Barrel stuff, as he called the uh, history of the times that he lived in. I guess it would be anyway. Who am I talking about? Well, of course, Judge Frederick Augustus. Hubbard. <laughs> and his column, The Judge's Corner, was published in the Greenwich News back in the day. We're very indebted to um, Frank Nicholson. I've mentioned many, many times that he performed a remarkable service by collecting Judge Hubbard's Greenwich News articles and publishing them in compendium form in a book that uh, you can find in the Greenwich Library system. It is titled Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard. Selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. Just uh, go to the library. I think you might be able to find it online, too. And um, it's a great book. It's one of my favorites. And um, today I'm going to share with you column number 135. This was published um, on, um, let's see, April 28th. And uh, that was in the year 1932. So, here we go. Um, More Greenwich Avenue history. The Connecticut Light and Power Office building, once the home of Hamilton W. Maybe, the author. Piping Brook, which is now underground. The Connecticut Light and Power Company's office occupies a building which once stood five or six rods west of its present location. The Mansard Roof House referred to last week was built by S. Merwin Mead, only 40 feet from the street line. The lot was a large one, comprising more than an acre, with a small apple orchard in the rear. It was offered to J. Augustus Johnson in the early 80s, that would be the 1880s, for $8,000. He deemed it too much, but was finally reconciled in its purchase by the erection of two houses in the rear, one of these was the moorish cottage later moved to west elm street where it now stands by the way it's now a parking lot the other house is in use by the electric light company the house was the home for several years of hamilton w maybe the author the house set amid apple trees of a century's growth and in its seclusion, Mr. Maybe did some of his best literary work there. He was editor of the Outlook magazine, and our library has many of his books. Later, the house was moved to the street line, and while it was owned by Deputy Sheriff William E. Rich, contained the police station. In 1854, Arch Street joined Greenwich Avenue at this point. Then it ran over a knoll, which is now the lawn of the Havemeyer School. On the crest of this knoll, at least 20 feet high, stood a weather-stained house built many years before. The front door was on the south side, with an old-fashioned well-sweep nearby. There was nothing to obstruct the view of the sound. It stood on the farm of D.S. Mead, and probably was built by his predecessor in ownership, Daniel Smith, However, when Art Street was changed to its present location, the little house disappeared. The tract of 11 or 12 acres was sold for $40,000 to the Meeting House School District in 1891, and the present school building was erected the following year. The grading of the school lot leveled the little knoll, and little more filling was required. Where the post office building now stands was another knoll, and Mr. Havemeyer bought the lot for $4,000 and leveled it down, used the earth to complete the schoolyard grading. It is said that he sold it later for the post office for $35,000, and at least a substantial part of the purchase price constitutes a trust fund, the income of which was used for repairs on the building." Below the post office to Griggs Street was a private residence. Beyond Griggs Street, there were three houses, one owned by William M. Tweed, and another was long the home of Mrs. L. Nathan Husted. That house was moved to the street line and is now used for business purposes. The approach to the railroad from the avenue was only twelve feet wide, and just south of the Daily Building, in what is now the corner of Railroad Avenue, was the farm barn of Henry L. Sackett. Going back now to the north of Greenwich Avenue, at the junction with Putnam Avenue, we will consider the east side of the Avenue. In 1854, neither Mason Street nor Lewis Street had been opened. All that tract of twenty-five acres or more lying between Greenwich Avenue and what is now Millbank Avenue was farmland. There were two apple orchards owned respectively by Brush Neb M. Henry M. Benedict. But the rest of the land extending south to what is now Lewis Street was under cultivation by its owner, Dr. Theodore L. Mason. His foreman, George Wellner, ploughed, planted, and harvested the crops. There was a lively little brook called Piping Brook, because its mouth was near Piping Point. This brook crossing Putnam Avenue from Church Street still runs, although confined in a great pipe that has its course down Mason Street, below Elm, and finds its outlet at the head of the harbor. But in 1854, it was the home of muskrats and the play place place of the neighboring children who built dams, set water wheels, and usually made their way home in wet clothing. But it was a limpid stream and afforded a watering place for the cows that Dr. Mason pastured on a portion of that tract. At the head of this tract at Greenwich Avenue was the Inn of Augustus Lyon, years before the Boston stages had made this their first stop. The house was built in colonial days, and within had a great open fireplace with hand-carved white pine mantles and paneled rooms. Later, under the ownership of John Voorhis, it was entirely changed in appearance, although its interior features were not disturbed. This house stood on what is now the front lawn of the Pickwick Arms Hotel. Peter Acker, heretofore referred to as the owner of Pickwick Corner, had a son, Abram, who also kept a store which occupied the easterly wing of the old inn of Augustus Lyon. Augustus Lyon's daughter was the wife of Abram Acker. In 1854, Mr. Lyon owned a considerable tract of land extending along the easterly side of Greenwich Avenue. The records tell us that his, quote, lower garden, unquote, which was probably located south of the present Greenwich Avenue parking place, which became Emma Jerome Crossway, he died around 1860, and on the 19th of November, 1862, his real estate was distributed to his uh, to heirs uh, at law. But before his death, Mr. Acker had conveyed to Robert and William Talbot this land, a portion of which is now occupied by the Talbot building at number 73. The balance of 50 feet was sold to John H. Merritt, who later conveyed it to John Dayton. It was on this lot that Elias S. Peck had a plumbing and tin shop, for many years, it is now occupied by the medical building owned by Mayor, S, or Mayor H. Cohen. Going back to 1856, two years after the Greenwich Avenue widening, we find Augustus Lyon made a 10-year lease at $80 a year of all the land between the M. and the Talbot building. But before its termination, the lease was apparently distributed for conveyances, and after Mr. Lyon's death, his daughter, the wife of Abram Acker, Hull sold one parcel fifty feet wide for one thousand dollars to John Dayton and Aaron P. Ferris. Took another fifty feet and the present parking space, for two thousand fifty dollars. On John Dayton's one thousand dollar parcel, was built the first business building on the avenue. It stands approximately south of the hotel property. It looks exactly as it did 72 years ago when it was built for a shoe store on the first floor and the law office of Daniel Merritt Meade on the second floor. Later in 1890, the Greenwich Savings Bank occupied the first floor and Colonel H. W. R. Hoyt occupied the second floor as his office. In 1870, Bonnet S. LaForge Bought the present location of the LaForge building, number, seven, number 53, for $3,000. These lots went back to the center of the stone wall on land of Dr. Theodore L. Mason, quote unquote. Dr. Mason's land became out, came out to the avenue between the Talbot building and Lewis Street. And he sold the lots in that strip now occupied by Business Buildings and the Putnam Trust Company, which was. 125 Greenwich Avenue He gave the land in 1881 from Greenwich uh, from Lewis Street pardon me north for the street which bears his name Lewis Street was named for his father-in-law Reverend Dr Isaac Lewis who owned many acres of farmland All the land between Lewis Street and Elm Street was a part of the Daniel Smith Mead farm he was the grandfather of Oliver D. Meade of Field Point Park. His son Edwin inherited a number of acres north of Elm Street. He had his land surveyed and divided into three quarter into three quarter acre plots, offering them at six hundred dollars each. Sales were made in the summer of eighteen fifty five. William M. Tears bought the he bought the Elm Street corner, where the Creamer building, number 235, now stands. He built the house now standing on the rear of the Creamer lot, but when it faced Greenwich Avenue, it was the home and private school of Dr. T.S. Pineo, author of many school books of that period. Isaac Weed bought two lots, One, uh, on one where the library, 205 Greenwich Avenue, stands. He built a house which was his home for many years. When the library was built, the Isaac Mead homestead was moved to East Elm Street, where it still stands. On the other lot, he built a house which his son, Edwin, in 1865 sold to Shadrach M. Brush for $5,000. The house has recently been torn down to make a place for the first National and W.T. Grant stores, now being erected at number 181, Shadrach M. Brush was in business, and at that time, with Joseph Horne at Mianus, but later he was in the lumber and building material trade at Rocky Neck. Below Elm Street was the farmland of S. Merwin Mead, extending down to the property of his brother Daniel S. Mead. All of this land was open for a good many years after the widening of the avenue. The farmhouse built in 1806 still stands in the rear of dooryard stores. It was the property of Dr. Burke. It was not until 1883 to 1899 that houses were built at the upper end where the Charles N. Mead store, at number 239, now stands. Later, with the building of the new post office, what was left of the Merwin-Mead land and considerable of the Daniel S. Mead land, Farther south, were occupied by business buildings south of the Smith land. And Thomas Rich, Joseph Jackson, and Elijah Lent owned an occupied land that was within the past 10 years been changed to an active business section. And this takes us to the end of the avenue as widened in 1854. Signed, Frederick A. Hubbard. <laughs> You've probably passed by it many times if you were in the Central Business District of Greenwich, especially if you were walking in the area of the Central Firehouse and the Police Department as well as maybe the the old town hall. This building, which is uh, still with us um, after 100 years, was the Greenwich Masonic Temple, Um, those of us who grew up here. Actually, knew it as the headquarters of uh, various banks, including uh, Greenwich Federal Savings and Loan, and um, and others. I believe. Anyway, it's a very impressive building uh, over off of uh, Millbank Avenue as well. And uh, well, lo and behold, I did. I found out that it was it was a hundred years ago that uh, the um, that the building was uh, erected, um, and it is uh, still there. Thank goodness. This was reported on in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, August 18th of 1922, and I wanted to share this with you. Um, The headline is Building the Temple, Impressive and Interesting Masonic Groundbreaking Ceremonies on Mason Street Lot. So without any further ado, let me begin. The first actual work toward the erection of a Masonic temple in Greenwich was taken on Tuesday evening when officers... And members of Acacia Lodge number no. eighty-five, AFNAM, the Greenwich Chapter No. 93, Order of the Eastern Star, Lockwood Chapter Number no. 52, R A M, and Masonic Temple assembled on the new Temple site, Mason Street, where the first sods were turned by officers, members, past Grand Masters of the Lodge, Chapter, Eastern Star and Club a lot of people, I'm sure. <laughs> the Masonic Lodge was opened in due form at 745, after which the line was formed in front of the Hubbard Building. The craft, accompanied by the officers and members, uh, Eastern Star, Royal Arch, Masons, and Masonic Club, then traveled east to the brow of the hill opposite the high school building, that would be, of course, the, um, uh, the old town hall annex, Uh, on Havemeyer Place and gathered about the letter G, which had been made with stakes put in the ground and between which the spade was put into operative use. Prayer was offered by Reverend H. Baxter Leibler, associate chaplain of Acacia Lodge, after which all joined in the singing of the doxology, led by the Masonic Quartet. Albert E. Austin, as president of the Masonic Temple Corporation and master of the Lodge, turned the first piece of sod with the spade, then called upon a number of those present to do likewise. Among them were R. G. Collins, high priest of Lockwood Chapter, were the matron Mrs. William A. Stevens of the Eastern Star, George L. Geibel, the acting president of the Masonic Club, R.R. R. Houston, architect of the temple; F.G.C. Smith, associate architect of the temple; George G. McNall, the past grand master of the state of Connecticut and past master of Acacia Lodge; Soren I. Gan- Gandrup, the master of Mamaro Lodge number 653 of Portchester; yeah. Joseph B. Crosby, master builder of the temple; Robert Wellstood the oldest living member of Acacia Lodge, Walker Simmons of Porchester, Associate Chaplain H. Baxter Leibler, as well as past masters Oscar Peck, Ernest Geisler, Frank Mead, William E. Finch, Dr. William L. Griswold, Dr. H. Barrett, and Walter M. Anderson, officers and members of different bodies represented. Oliver D. Meade, former owner of the property upon which the temple is to be erected, was called upon by Worshipful Master Austin to give a brief history of the lot, which he now sold to the Masons. Mr. Meade, in a few words, explained that the property was originally owned by his grandfather and had been in his family since 1880. He mentioned the house which used to stand near the site the singing of America and pronouncing of the benediction by Reverend Brother Leibler brought the exercises to a close. This historic occasion was followed by a meeting of the Masonic Club rooms at which Worshipful Master Austin presided. Some rousing addresses were made by R.R. R. Houston, George L. Geibel, Mrs. William A. Stevens, R.G. Collins, and Robert L. Chamberlain of the Temple Finance Committee, which were concluded with a few remarks by the worshipful master, who declared that the keynote of the occasion was that the first steps had been taken toward the erection of a temple and the work was not going to stop until the building had been completed. He said the cornerstone for the new temple would be laid in October, when he expected some 1,500 masons here. He was more positive than ever that the temple would be erected for the reason that that very morning, when he and Mr. Geibel went over to the site of the new temple to place the stakes, as he was bending down to place one of the stakes in the ground, he felt something rubbing against his hand and looked down and he saw a black cat. This incident had convinced him, he said, that the entire amount necessary for the erection of the temple would be forthcoming in October. Well, well, <laughs> anyway, let's move on with the story. Mr. Houston closed his address by reading the following poem, written for the occasion by Manly Rich, a member of Acacia Lodge. And the temp- the, the title of the, um, of the poem is Laboring on the Temple. At last, it's time to use the spade, which indicates some progress made before another year rolls round here on the spot, there may, may there be found a temple worthy of the name. Too long we bowed our heads in shame. Let every brother do his share. Then, when we view our temple fair or welcome visitors who come, may we be proud of our new home. May we feel when we shall sit in our new place, quote, I did my bit. Unquote. We're thankful, and I'm here to state, we may ourselves congratulate, and when it's time to hand the thanks out, we'll bear our domes and cheer and shout. For one who, it may well be said, was not afraid to go ahead, our worshipful master. And thus concludes the, the poem. The story goes on. The new Masonic Temple is to cost approximately $100,000. It will be of red brick with white marble trimmings, two stories in height, and a basement. George B. Post and Sons of 101 Park Avenue, New York are the architects. R.R. Houston is a member of this firm. F.G.C. Smith of Greenwich is the associate architect. It was conceived by the architects in the drawing of the plans for the new temple. That the town of Greenwich should have a Masonic temple represented representing the ancient craft of masonry in this section of the country, which should be of the architecture used by their forefathers, namely Old Colonial. The design of the temple is as near to the style as architecture as it can be made, consistent with the requirements of a Masonic lodge. The building proper is 107 feet, four inches long, and 86 feet wide or front. On the ground floor is a foyer, 37 by 20 feet, and banquet hall, 37 by 82 feet, with provision for coat and toilet rooms and kitchen, also a club room and library, 22 by 45 feet, and a billiard room, 22 by 45 feet, each having adequate toilet facilities. On the second floor will be the lodge room, 38 by 70 feet, with generous ante-room, office space, etc. Above the ante-room is a space 27 by 38 feet for storage purposes, such as paraphernalia, organ loft, and toilet room. In the basement space is to be provided for six bowling alleys, hmm, boiler and storage room. And that, my friends, concludes the story, which was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, August 18th, 1922, just a little over a hundred years ago. It's easy to see why the Greenwich Historical Society's Tavern Garden Markets have been wowing shoppers all year. In a class by itself, the Tavern Garden Markets feature a specially curated and alternating selection of locally grown and sourced products. Support local growers, producers, and artisans when you fill your basket and your home with the bounties of nature and unique handcrafted goods. Enjoy farm-to-table organic produce, fresh eggs, plants, and flowers. Savor the flavors of nutritious prepared foods, fresh-baked breads, fruit pies, and donuts. Find the perfect gift among an array of vintage silver, jewelry, stationery, ceramics, and accessories. My friends, mark your calendars for Wednesday, October 5th, and Wednesday, October 19th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., Tavern Garden Markets are held in the lobby and Tavern Gardens at the Greenwich Historical Society's Bush-Holly House Campus at 47 Strickland Road. Free parking. Tavern Garden Markets are sponsored by Yashmin Lloyds and Compass. The Greenwich Historical Society invites you to attend the Fall Scarecrow Festival on Saturday, October 8th, year 2022, from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., rain or shine. There'll be live music, food, the Scarecrow Contest, and crafts. You can purchase tickets at GreenwichHistory.org. My friends, bring the whole family for a festive day on the beautiful Historical Society grounds. Compete in our annual Scarecrow Building Competition, Dance to live music by 2Blue and enjoy delicious food provided by Pizza Post in celebration of their 50th anniversary. Donations of creative scarecrow clothes and accessories are welcomed. My friends, for more information, you can call 203-869-6899 or visit gretichistory.org. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to go. I want to thank you for tuning in to the 23rd of September 2022 episode of the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast. It is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, here in the USA. Now, the town was founded on July 18, 1640. And I'm very proud to say that Greenwich is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You and your Greenwich stories are a part of our history, and we're very, very glad to have you. The Greenwich A Town For All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. You can always contact me by email by going online to Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and listen to past shows. There's no paywall, so you can listen to your heart's content and even send them by, uh, by link over to uh, your friends and family everywhere by going to Greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. The show and I are on Facebook and Twitter, and so please look us up there. Speaking of Facebook, you can look for and join any of a number of Greenwich, Connecticut groups. These include You Know You're From Greenwich, If... Images of Greenwich, Connecticut, Greenwich Connections, the Byram Neighborhood Association, Friends of Byram Park, and the Port Chester, New York Historical Archive for our neighbors in Port Chester, Westchester County, New York, and there are others. Just look them up and uh, and you'll find them. Our next show is scheduled for Friday the 30th of September, year 2022. My friends, Please go out and enjoy the weekend. It's now autumn, so please go out and uh, take advantage of the warm weather. It's wonderful out there. All right, take good care. See you next week. Bye-bye now.